When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Today we've got another poll position for you. This is a subject that uh, I've been dying to get Olivia Orford to come and join us. She's a historian specialising in the Cathy Massacre, which is exactly what we're going to be talking about today. She's currently translating biographies of the victims of the massacre from Polish to English, and she's also writing a book on the subject, which we're very excited and we want you to bring out as soon as possible. You can find her on Twitter, uh, so at Cathy1940, where she tries to raise awareness of the massacre. Welcome, Olivia. Thank you. This is very exciting. I'm very much looking forward to talking to you about Cathy. I mean, however horrific and however horrible this event was, it is something that's not really well known in the Western world, is it? Absolutely not. And I mean, when I first came came across it, I was absolutely hor- horrified uh, that, that something like an event like this that took place in World War Two was just not better known. And I considered myself well versed in, you know, World War Two as someone that had studied it at school and read a lot about the Holocaust and things. But then to find out all of the horrible things that were done in Poland by the Soviets and to have, you know, a massacre of 22,000 people of the elites um, and that it was lied about for 50 years um, and only really the truth only really started to come out in the 1990s. Uh, it was just I was absolutely shell-shocked to be honest with you. Do you know, I'm going to be guilty of one of these things because I predominantly work on, obviously, the German uh, the German invasion of yep. Poland. So I'm one of these that's very guilty of not concentrating what happens in, in the Soviet occupation. I mean, I know, I know what happens and I understand it, but it's something that we do need to talk more about because all we do is concentrate on the German side. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that you know you had british and american troops who were part of uh, liberating you know some of the camps in 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 germany and you know what was then germany but then obviously was West, western poland after the end of the war in in 45 so the knowledge was there at, at the time whereas a lot of the things that happened in the you know that was happening in eastern eastern poland it then obviously became part of the of the of the soviet union and there was it was very much controlled, you know, even in like mm. communist Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, you know, a lot of the, the local experiences that would have happened, um, you know, they were, they were tightly controlled by the, by the communist authorities there. And obviously they were being told by, you know, Moscow what they could and they couldn't, what they could and couldn't, you know, discuss, his, you know, mm. education was very, very much formalized. So I think that's why certainly in the West, the Holocaust is is much better known because 
we had you know we had our guys there liberating and they saw it with their own eyes you know what, what was happening what was happening to people and those stories were, would ov- were obviously coming back to the you know to to the british press or whatever but in terms of um a lot of the information about what was happening kind of in the soviet sphere of influence that was only really being brought back by the emigres you know polish people that had yeah. you know come to britain after the war and were able to stay here things were being written about in the, in the underground press within within poland so it was well known amongst polish circles but it, it you know it wasn't necessarily getting that that press kind of you know beyond beyond those beyond that sphere to you know to like a wider wider public so okay listen so let's let's talk about Catherine but before we start actually talking about what happened we need to talk a little bit about the historical background to give our listeners a bit of context. So can of you course. briefly tell us what the relationship was like between Poland and Russia pre-war, uh, pre-war? So obviously, um, end of World War One saw many, um, you know, many of the empires in Europe collapse, including the, the Russian Empire. And the Treaty of Versailles was, was pivotal in kind of redrawing the borders across Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and one of the big problems was that Poland's kind of, you know, having been resurrected after 123 years, having been wiped off the, wiped off the map, you know, through the partitions in the 18th, 18th century, you know, third of it was being controlled by Prussia, another third um, being controlled by the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and another third being controlled by, by the Russian Empire. So a big issue was that the western border of Poland was laid down in the Treaty of Versailles. Um, however, the eastern border, which obviously at that time was, bo- you know, was bordering the Russian Empire and then subsequently became, you know, the Soviet Soviet Union, that was never um, determined by by a peace treaty. So what happened was that you ended up there ended up being a conflict between, you know, the new Polish state uh, and the Red Army, because given the weakness in Germany at the time. In 1918, you know, it was all very, very chaotic. Uh, uh, Lenin in Moscow decided that, you know, he was going to, you know, bring his his revolution into Europe, his socialist revolution, and the aim was to get to Berlin. And this obviously meant coming through coming through Poland and, you know, making Poland a, a satellite state of Soviet Union. Uh, Soviet Union. And they also wanted to regain all the lands that they'd uh, lost under the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. Um, so there was obviously a war between um, Poland and uh, and uh, Russia, Soviet Russia. And uh, in the end, the uh, Polish army managed to stop the Red Army um, in the Battle of Warsaw, which is also known as the Miracle on the Vistula, in August 1920. And uh, following their defeat... They began negotiations and they had the, the Treaty of Riga, which was uh, signed in 1921. And that pretty much established Poland's uh, eastern border, which did incorporate quite a few lands that were populated by Jews, Ukrainians and, and Belarusians. So that kind of set the framework for like the next 20 years. But the biggest problem was that despite the uh, Soviets agreeing to that treaty and it being recognised by like, you know, the other powers in 1923, um, they were never completely satisfied that they had lost, you know, lands with such a high percentage of, uh, you know, their Slavic brothers, as they like to call it. So throughout the 1920s, um, the early 1920s, there was actually quite a lot of tension along the border between, you know, the Polish, um, like, police 
uh, and the security forces and Moscow was sponsoring kind of local uprisings and stuff like that. So, you know, people talk about the little green men in Crimea, you know, the Kremlin kind of causing trouble and agitation, you know, in order to try and cause like unrest. That's not something new. That's something they've been doing for, you know, over a hundred years. And it was first being employed, uh, you know, in, in Poland, in the Second Republic. Um, so there were lots of border skirmishes and, and issues in the early 1920s. But I think it became a point where Poland was like, no, we need to kind of set, settle things down. So they started negotiating with Soviets about having uh, a non-aggression pact. And these were quite common. You know, there was a non-aggression pact with Germany. Um because after World War One, nobody really wanted to be, you know, going back to having total war. Yeah. So the idea, so the idea was that, you know, we're going to settle our issues, but through negotiation, we're not just going to, you know, pick up our pick up our guns, pick, uh, you know, and roll our tanks across the border and, you know, settle settle our conflicts that way. But it wasn't until 1932 that they actually passed that. There was a lot of, you know, going backwards and forwards. So tensions were were always kind of there, and. And Warsaw definitely adopted a policy of, you know, trying to balance their relations with the Soviet Union and obviously their relations with with Germany, you know, trying to kind of have an equidistant foreign foreign policy, uh, so to speak. But the Soviets attitude towards Poles, not not just the ones inside Poland, they also um, they were extremely they were very much targeted during the purges as well. So this underlying kind of hatred towards Poles was was already there by the way that um, the, that the Polish minorities in in Soviet Ukraine were targeted during the purges in 1937. You know, there were lots of people that were like affected by that. And re historians recently have talked about that maybe be, could be considered, a, you know, ethnic cleansing. Because to be Polish in Soviet Ukraine, you attracted more attention and you were more likely to be purged than, you know, any other minority that was, you know, being targeted at that that time um so it was it was a really difficult time and obviously poland being a brand new state um there were a lot there was lots of stuff to sort out as well so um lots and with chaos, you know, basically there was it was really really chaotic you know i mean the war it was difficult even just in those those first few years of, of independence you know they're at war they're, they're at war with the soviets there's lots of prisoners of war being taken like by the red army there's been accusations leveled at them that they you know they systematically try to you know kill these prisoners of war but actually the conditions in the camps were just awful you know the economy was really bad you know you've got to remember there was like economic crashes happening around the world wall street crash there was all the hyperinflation everything in germany so everything was having a having a knock-on effect so yeah it was a, i think it was a really tough time and i think poland did the best that they could and the soviets really tried to exploit those weaknesses in the way in which they dealt with them okay so let's let's fast forward just a little bit we yeah. are going to the first september so germany invades poland 1989 yeah which is then followed by the Soviet invasion on the 17th of September, literally just over two weeks later. Uh, the campaign was swift. Yeah. But were there a lot of POWs, so prison of, prisoners of war taken uh, from the Soviet side? Absolutely, because the, the biggest problem was that the, you know, the government in Warsaw had, were already fighting against you know, the German onslaught, the, the Blitzkrieg. 
so when the Soviets invaded on the 17th of September 1939, they were, they were claiming that, you know, the Polish state was internally bankrupt and that any kind of um, international agreements that they had with Poland were defunct. And their, and their whole, like, reason for crossing the border was that they were going to um, liberate uh, its Slavic brothers, i.e. The, lo- the local populations of the Ukrainians and Belarusians in the eastern eastern borderlands. And the number of troops that were actually um, mobilized initially, it was like, you know, it was half a million troops of the of the Red Army along the whole of Poland's Incredible. eastern frontier, 5,000 troops. And by October, it was one and a half million troops had been mobilized along the like Belarusian front and the Ukrainian Ukrainian front. So on on Poland's eastern border, you literally had um, 20,000 uh, lightly armed border guards. You know, they weren't they weren't expected to fight with the military might of the Red Army. So they were pretty much a, a walkover. And another thing that happened was that the, the Polish high command basically told the Polish army, do not engage in fighting with the Red Army. My, uh, my great-grandfather writes in his diary exactly that. The high yeah. command has stated, do not engage with the Red Army. So a lot of so a lot of um, so a lot of units that were obviously that had been pushed back by the Germans into into like into the Cressy into the eastern borderlands. You know there was there was some resistance, but it was quite it was quite disorganised. Um, so it was very it was relatively easy for the Red Army to pretty much cross the border, and they were covering between thirty to forty kilometres a day. And a lot of the time they would go into cities and they would just surrender because that's ultimately what they had been told. And also a lot of people, a lot of like soldiers and officers, they, they weren't sure why the Red Army were invading. You know, some people thought, oh, they're here to they're here to liberate us from the Germans. They're, they're coming across as allies. And the Soviet high command purposefully you know, they gave out confusing messages. So people didn't actually know why they were there. And that meant that a lot of the Polish units, you know, obviously having experienced or heard of what was happening to, you know, in, in further in the West with, with the German army, they were much more willing to surrender to the Soviets, thinking that they were there to help them, basically. Um, so that's why there were so many, um, there were so many uh, prisoners of prisoners of war. Um, and obviously in Lviv, for example, uh, General Lagner, he was fooled in surrendering uh, his officers to the NKVD on the 22nd of September. Um, and although most of the rank and file soldiers were initially were freed, you know, you had cases where people was the uh, officers or, or commanding officers were signing capitulation agreements with, you know, with the Soviet commanders in, in different areas. And they would say, well, you know, as a stipulation of the capitulation, you know, you're going to let us re- return home. But what actually happened was that these soldiers and these officers were rounded up and they were sent on to prisoner of war war camps. Um, and there was definitely cooperation between Soviet and German forces in, 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 this, in this case um, because our Soviet documents state that... Um, where the German, there were, you know, the German command would appeal to uh, the Red Army for help in destroying Polish gangs. So the Soviets would, you know, release the necessary forces to help with that, 
to cover the withdrawal of the German units from land, which was then to be occupied by the by the Red Army. So it was it was very much a coordinated action. People um, rallies were held as well. So you know units were were told you must meet in 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 this place, and they were pretty much just rounded up and put onto uh, put onto trains and then sent to like the first transport uh, the transfer camps and then they were further transported into the Soviet Union so a lot of people you know they were literally just taken and they and they, with all the confusion going on they, they didn't actually know what was happening and some of them were promised that they would be sent further they would be sent west but actually they were sent east so that's how they were man they managed to take so many prisoners of war I just want to add, because you mentioned um, General Langner, and he is something that left him and stayed with him till the end of time, this thing that what happened to the soldiers in well, his officers in cutting, nobody could predict what was going to happen. Nobody was going to predict that all of this massacres and death and sorrow. Yeah. It is something that, like I said, nobody knew was going to happen. And to him, for, till that moment he died, that is the thing that he thought of, was the officers that he lost because of what the Soviets did. I mean, the, the amount of, um, after the fighting ended, all of those who'd ever served in the Polish army were captured to be sent onto camps and prisons. And that was something that was laid down in the NKVD like documents you know that was that was the aim was we're going to destroy you know we're going to capture the army I, I don't think it was ever foreseen at that point that they would you know end up being massacred as they were in Katyn and Miednoya and, and Kharkov and you know and, and, and other places that you know are still unknown to this to this day but there were more casualties in that period you know people were still like summarily executed you know not not everybody was was sent away some people were just just killed on the spot and so there were more casualties and more death then than actually occurred in the fighting during the soviet invasion initial invasion which is just crazy and a lot of the time they would use violence to kind of move the columns of of soldiers on you know to get them onto these these trains or whatever because they weren't all necessarily transported by train straight away or by or like, or by um, like vans, Black Marias. A lot of the time, they they were for, it was forced marches. So, so yeah, you, it was a horrible time. It is. This is exactly. What I just want to lead on to this. Is so. Do we actually know what life was like in these prisoner of war camps? Absolutely. So uh, thankfully, there are um, a lot of uh, documents um that that are still in the in the russian archives um that were drawn up by the um, nkvd department for prisoners of war uh, inspectors from that department used to file reports on you know how the camps were being run what was this uh, the state of mind of the of the prisoners as well as obviously um letters that were sent home by the by the prisoners themselves um, you know, there were diaries found on the bodies that were exhumed from the Katyn Forest in 1943, which give us, you know, quite a good idea of, you know, what life was like. Um, and there were survivors. Um, 374 uh, prisoners were actually released from captivity 
it's it's quite unclear why they weren't selected to be you massacred but some people were pulled from the groups that were being sent off to be shot you know just before so we obviously have their their memoirs and their experiences in the camp but most most people were sent to the prisoners of war camp by rail or by force marches as i said before they traveled in cattle cars they had minimal food or drink they weren't able to wash themselves so they were probably already suffering with lice before they even got to the camps um the camps themselves because it's important to make a distinction here there were three special camps and there were also people killed in the cat and massacre that were actually based in prison so i'm going to talk mainly about life in the camps here um all three of them so we had a camp in kozhelsk a camp in starobelsk and a camp in ostashkov they were all based around like former monastery buildings okay and the the sheer volume of prisoners that were starting to arrive in like october november 1939 they could not accommodate them because there were so many of them so they ended up sending kind of the you know the the privates the rank and file soldiers home because they couldn't accommodate them the the sanitation was extremely poor um and it wasn't until they started to send more of the you know the rank and file soldiers home that conditions started to improve in the in the, in the camp uh, the buildings were pretty dilapidated um um in the diaries a lot of the prisoners talk about being constantly hungry you know they they would get two servings of like a watery soup a day they rarely got meat or fish and vegetables were extremely scarce for the smokers amongst them the tobacco ration was very very meager they were able to buy stuff uh, from shops or like you know traveling merchants that would that would that would come in but because you had the NKVD officers there that were you know running running the camps they often would get first dibs on any kind of products that were that were for sale and they were only able to buy stuff with rubles so a lot of the time you know the the prisoners of war had to sell any valuables that they'd managed to keep on their person just to get rubles to then be able to buy other food or other other items some prisoners were able to receive parcels from home um but again they were only allowed to start corresponding with their family um in the november and december of 1939 because prior to that it was it was banned and it was only after a lot of petitioning to the camp authorities that they actually allowed them to do that um they had a camp infirmaries which were actually staffed by medically trained prisoners of war so people that practiced as doctors and surgeons you know prior to being captured they were the ones that were looking after their fellow fellow prisoners and certainly in Ostashkov which was a camp that was mainly um holding like gendarmes police officers and members of the border guard they actually did an awful lot of improvements to the camp in terms of building better bunks and barracks and things for for the fellow prisoners of war to help save on the cost of running the camp and that was actually mentioned in some of the reports you know made by the NKVD but life was very very it was very boring and you know i've read quite a few of the diaries and you know they they just yearning for um letters from home you know they would be able to write a postcard which obviously would be very heavily censored um and then you know every day or every week they would you know the the post would come in and it would be like i didn't receive a letter today i didn't receive a letter today and some people just they heard nothing 
from their family and friends. So it was a really, really hard, really hard, hard time for them. I mean, they they also tried to do um, they they I mean they did try to re-educate the the prisoners of war. You know, they they had a cinema and they had a whole repertoire of Soviet films propaganda films to try and brainwash them but the reports that were constantly being sent back to you know the nkvd in moscow you know the central kind of organization was that no matter how much propaganda they threw at them it it just would not wash and you know there were reports that you know the poles are very patriotic they they talk about you know being able to fight for a free free poland again so they man they despite this you know this adversity and, and not knowing what was going on you know what was going to happen to them they they did manage to keep their spirits up in a number of ways they managed to keep religious life going throughout the camp despite it being absolutely prohibited by the by the authorities um religious services were held because there were many you know there were quite a few um chaplains and and rabbis in the camp so they were able to like hold services mainly in you know the very dark corners of the of the you know the monastery monastery buildings um there were some really intelligent uh experts across a range of disciplines uh, within these camps they would hold lectures they would play they would play cards which was which was seen by the soviets as a capitalist game they played chess which you can which we know from the fact that there are carved chess pieces you know that were recovered from the bodies that you can see in the mm. Katyn museum now in warsaw you know um it was just and, and even in kozel's camp for example they had two newspapers that they managed to produce before they were shut down by the authorities so they the the prisoners of war really did try and make the best of their situation you know they they continued to observe you know the different ranks as well within the army and the salutations so you know the generals generally would be would generally stay in the better barracks you know and things and things like that so yeah and obviously they were interrogated as well just trying to find out about their pre-war life and you know, trying to get them to see if they would be, you know, um, able to get them to be informers on, you know, other people in the camp and build up cases against them. But a lot of the time, you know, the Soviet interrogators' efforts was just completely futile. So then there was a decision to execute a massacre, 22,000 people. I mean, how did this come about and, and why? So there's there's still speculation as to why they decided to massacre um, the the prisoners of war, um, but the the main decision was taken on the fifth of March, nineteen forty, by the political bureau of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, and they decided that fourteen thousand seven hundred people that were being held in the three prisoner of war camps in Kozel, Starobarsk, and Ostashkov as well as 11,000 detainees who were being held in prisons in Western Belarus and Western Ukraine, that they should be processed under a special procedure. And this basically meant that they would be executed without the need to summon them or press any charges or tell them that they were even being investigated or even tell them what they were being indicted for. Um, and this, this 
order was based off um, a recommendation by the People's Commissar for Internal Affairs of the USSR, Lavrenti Beria, who um, he proposed that that this special procedure should be carried out against these prisoners because they were just enemies of the people. And prior to this, there had obviously been reports about, you know, are we going to be able to use these Polish officers in, you know, getting them to join the Red Army, etc. And they, they knew it was absolutely pointless. So, and that they were not showing any prospects for improvement. So there was an NKVD troika which was made up of three, three people, and they were going to examine all the cases of all of these condemned men, and then they were going to be dispatched uh, on the basis of instruction lists that were sent by Moscow. So the whole, the whole thing was coordinated from Moscow from, from, the very, from the very top out to the regional NKVD offices. Um, why, were they, why was this decision made in March? Well, obviously, the Soviets were at the time also fighting um in finland and there was an i there's an idea that they needed to um clear out the camps so that they had some space for some new finnish prisoners of war that they were going to capture um but it's not actually been there's no clear reason as to why they why they did it only on more ideological reasons of them being enemies of the of the people I mean, one could speculate that actually it was just a continuation of their policy from the purges where they had already purged, you know, however many thousands of, of, of Poles from Soviet Ukraine. And now they needed to do the, do the same. So it was just a form of ethnic cleansing. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So let's talk about some of the people. I mean, who was executed? Was it just prisoners of war, Poles? And were there any women among them? There were just people from all different uh, occupations, backgrounds, massacred. You know, it, it ranged from, you know, four-star generals, men, of the navy all the way down to you know you're a, a primary teacher in a in a village somewhere so it really did affect many members of society um i mean for example in Katyn, there are four olympians buried there you know people that represented the, you know the polish the polish state in athletics and uh, equestrian sports footballers 
So just, you know, famous, like famous sportsmen. There were also um, distinguished historians that were, that, were, that were massacred as well and buried in, in, in Katyn. So it really was um, a massive section of, of Polish society, mainly, obviously, the intelligentsia. Uh, there were many religious figures as well. For example, um, the, the chief rabbi of the, of the Polish army, um, as well as, you know, the, the head chaplain for the Orthodox faith, the Catholic faith, uh, the evangelical Lutheran faith as well were all were all killed in the in the Katyn massacres, um, but it wasn't just all men. In terms of uh, the camps, there was only one woman uh, that was that was killed, um, and her name was Janina Lewandowska, and she was the daughter of uh, Józef Dowbor Muszynski, who was the leader of the Great Poland Uprising in 1918. So he was a really important um, general. Unfortunately, he, he, he died um, before the outbreak of war. So he never actually found out what happened to his, his two daughters because Janina was, you know, she was a, um, she had started off having a background in, uh, in music. She'd gone to conservatoire in Poznan um, and she wanted to have a career as a singer, but her father frowned upon that. So she ended up re- retraining and doing courses in like radio radio um and telegraph things um and ultimately she fell in love with flying and she became a a pilot not a military pilot more an amateur pilot um, but there she she fell in love with her instructor and they got married just before the war so she was actually called up to war um she got her mobilization card in uh, in early early september and she, along with her other colleagues from the um, Poznan um, Air Club, ended up being taken into captivity in Hushatin in Ukraine. And obviously, she ended up uh, being transported to Starobel's camp, first of all, and then ended up in, in Kozhel's. But she was the only, only woman uh, there. And it was only because her skull was found um, during the exhumations and taken to uh, Breslau, which then obviously became Wrocław, and held in a vault there. Um, that they were able to confirm that it was her, based on modelling of her of her skull and um, and whatnot, because the information she given during interrogations actually wasn't her true biographical information. But the Soviets must have known that they had the daughter of you know one of the the great Polish generals from you know World War One sitting in their sitting in their. Uh, in their camp, which is probably part of the reason why they didn't release her. And there were 54 women uh, on the Ukrainian list, so that were based, that were being held in prisons in uh, in Ukraine. Uh, a number of whom, again, from all different um, parts of society. Um, one of them was a uh, a senator. So Janina was the only uh, woman uh, in in one of the special camps, but um, there were more. Yeah, on the Ukrainian list, uh, there were many civilians, lawyers, doctors of various denominations. But there were also people that weren't just Polish, but Russian, Ukrainian, and 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 Jewish. Uh, so the fifty-four women that appear on the Ukrainian list, they they don't represent as broad a professional spectrum as in the case of men, but they were very active. Uh, in social and political uh, life. 
So one of the uh, one of the women was called Josefa Fuchsufna, uh, uh, and she was a very active in the Polish Women's League um, already during the First World War. So she organised committees to help wounded and captured Russian legionnaires, and and she was actually arrested by the Austrians in World War One for helping for helping the the Russian legionnaires. And lo and behold, twenty years later, she's uh, she's arrested by the she's arrested by the Russians. Uh, you you just can't make this make this stuff up. Um, but she was very active in the women's civic labour union, and she was the first chairwoman um, of the Voivodeship Association of of this organisation. And she actually ran for elections in the same in 19 in the 1935 election so that's you know so that's just one lady and there was even a swiss citizen whose name appears on the ukrainian list and her name was Erna arnold and she was a teacher and she taught foreign languages she taught french and german i mean there were also many women who were the wives of uh, polish officers as well who were who were rounded up and and shot again being held in the ukrainian prisons um there was a lady uh, called um, Alexandra Valenta, who um, she was an associate, uh, like professor or assistant at the Agalonian University, as well. So yeah, from many different um, walks of walks of life. It's incredible. I mean, thinking of all of these people, just average, some of these average people, not even officers, yeah. and they're losing their lives all because they're part of, quote, the intelligentsia. It's just unimaginable. Yeah. So that would be it. You and I would be gone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is the thing that it, a lot of the time people obviously will focus on, you know, the big, the, the big important names. But... It, it would be like Mo Farah and, you know, whoever organises the rubbish collections in your local council. You know, they were they were both shot just for the simple reason that they were Polish. It's incredible. I mean, I, I still can't... After so many years, I still can't wrap my head around it. It's just, it's unbelievable. I've got... I want to add something in here. Um, and I don't mean it to sound as gruesome as how this question is, is going to come out but it's quite important to understand the process so can you tell us actually what happened with these executions because i want to know were they executed over days weeks months um where were they executed and can you just walk us through this process so the so in terms of the prisoners that were being held in the three special camps um they were executed over a period of it was around six weeks, six to eight weeks. Um, the first, the first step was the um, prisoner of war's departure had to be organised. Um, this was obviously being done in Moscow, who were sending down the lists of um, who was to be, you know, transported in whatever uh, and consignment. And then they had to be transported. So then they were transported from the camp to the to the killing sites so for those in Kozhelsk they were transported to um, Smolensk uh, and they were actually uh, executed in a NKVD dacha summer house you know a place where they would go to spend their holidays they were executed in the basement there uh, some of the prisoners were actually shot right next to the uh, 
you know, freshly dug pits um, instead. And you can just imagine being driven to this killing site and seeing all your compatriots in front of you that have already been shot in the back of the head. Um, a lot of the time, um, they would be transported in uh, prison vans, which were known as Black Ravens. These were they were complete. They were completely black. The windows were were blacked out. In terms of the um, the method, a lot of these prisoners of war would be killed with a single shot in the back of the head by an executioner. So it was actually quite a personal execution. You know, the people killing them were pointing it right at the base of their skull and there would be that that interaction and there was one executioner called Vasily Blokin who actually he he's thought to have murdered up to 7,000 people and in some nights they would be killing up to 450 people. I have no words. Um, um, in Katyn for example during the exhumations they actually found that quite about a third of the prisoners had actually had their hands bound with rope or wire probably because they had tried to struggle um and if the you know and if they had struggled too much and that all the shot had hadn't fully killed them because they'd moved or whatever they would be stabbed with bayonets and rifle butts so yeah it's it's extremely um gruesome but the the transports of prisoners uh, they they started on the like very much on the beginning of april and normally it was between it could be between like 70 prisoners up to you know 300 in one batch and they would be leaving consecutively kind of every few days and in ostashkov they they thought they were you know going to freedom and they even had musicians playing music as they left the camp what does that remind you of exactly it's do you know, when I, when I went to the Cutting Museum and you go into the basement, because obviously upstairs, for our listeners who have not been, you've got the general exhibition. And when you go downstairs into the basement, that is where you see the most, most of the personal effects. And as you yeah. walk through and you look at the things that they found amongst the, the, the remains are things like keys. And I think that's the one thing that affected me the most was looking at keys because like you just said, they thought they were going home. Yeah. So that is one thing you would take with you, your keys, you know, and everything else that you'd have your personal effects because you're ready to go home. But you're what going home? You're going to be brutally, personally murdered instead. I think it's been quite, thankfully, it's been quite well established, you know, the method of, of execution for those that were in the camps. But for the you know, 11,000 prisoners that were being held in the Ukrainian and Belarusian prisons. It's much, we, we know much less because there's a lack of archival documents that have come to light. But again, it's it's most likely that it was all directed from Moscow and prisoners were transported from various prisons to a central execution point as as a way of maintaining secrecy. Because this was not done out in the open. Even the people running the camps themselves like the the ordinary like guards and the camp administration they did not know where these prisoners were going they were just told you need to load these prisoners up and send them to to then be at the disposal of whichever regional nkvd office it was that they were being sent to whichever city whether it was smolensk or kalinin or or harkov 
So there were probably only 125 members of the NKVD that actually knew what was happening to these thousands of, of, of people. I am going to ask later if anybody faced prosecution, but let, let's move on slightly away from the, the massacre. So everything has been covered up now. Yeah. And lo and behold, the Germans decide to invade the Soviet Union, June 1941. Yeah. What happens next? Well, obviously, Germany invading the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union then starts to look to finding allies to join it in the fight against Nazi Germany. So this actually led to the uh, re-establishment of relations between the Soviet Union and Poland, which had obviously been been broken off following the invasion in September 1939. Um, they became allies, and the main aim was obviously to defeat Nazi Germany. So agreement was signed between Władysław Sikorski, who was head of the Polish government in exile, which was based in London at the time, uh, and Ian Maisky. Um, and this this was kind of the basis for the creation of the, there was to be the creation of a um, Polish army on the territory of the USSR. And all of those Polish citizens that had been deported, something we didn't really mention, but there were four waves of deportations during the, the time of the Soviet occupation of Eastern Poland. Um, all of the people that had been deported, sent to the gulags, labor camps, penal colonies, they were all to be amnestied as a result of this um, agreement. The Robbentrop-Molotov Pact was supposedly null and, null and void. So obviously there's this very awkward alliance between the Polish government in exile and the Soviet, Soviet Union. There's obviously the case of where are, you know, where are 15,000 of our officers gone? Are, you know what not just reservists too obviously um and despite it being raised several times you know one of stalin's retorts was oh they you know they everybody's been amnesties they they must be in manchuria or something you know this flip and throwaway comment yeah, knowing okay. full well that they've been masked you know so relations were really tense there was always what's going to happen with you know the land that they've annexed and you know the way that they've been they've treated the polish citizens that they've declared to now be soviet citizens and you know it was it was pretty pretty horrible um but ultimately in 1943 when the germans discovered the bodies well they actually discovered them in 1942 and waited until april 1943 as an opportune moment to you know announce the discovery of the 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 bodies in the katyn forest and to declare that obviously it was a Soviet crime. They already, a month before, in Moscow, Stalin's already starting to think about, well, I need to organise a alternative government, you know, for, for Poland. So the Union of Polish Patriots is, is already being formed just before, the, you know, the Katyn announcement is, is made. Um, and this puts huge pressure on the Polish uh, government in exile. And they they call for an investigation to happen by the International Red Cross. And Stalin uses this as a pretext to end relations and accuses the Polish government in exile of collaborating with Hitler. 
because the Nazis actually set up an international um, commission to, to investigate the circumstances of the crime and carry out the exhumations and, and, and whatever. So this actually causes a, a break again in relations between, between the two countries, which totally discredits, you know, the legal Polish government in exile totally discredits them and then allows Stalin during you know the move towards Warsaw 1944 1945 to um, install his own um, Polish Polish government in in Warsaw I mean I find and, this really really funny so not actually f physically funny but to the yeah. point that the Germans have, you know, unearthed all of these, all of these remains. And they go, oh my God, you know, they've committed war crimes when they themselves yeah. were doing pretty much exactly the same thing in concentration camps, in Palmyra, um, for example, yeah. street roundups, the shooting people in, in the ruins of the, of the Warsaw Ghetto. It, it is just, it, it's, I just can't understand it. You know, oh, you're doing war crimes, but you know, it's okay when we do it, but it's bad when you yeah. do it. Yeah. But obviously, the main aim was to was to harm the 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 alliance between Soviet Union, Poland, and the USA and and Britain at the time. And it because did. obviously there was a shift. Absolutely, it it did, and it it really did set up Stalin being able to manoeuvre his you know his his po Union of Polish Patriots to come in and and ultimately form you know, a new, a new government that ultimately would be recognised by the Allies as, you know, the, the, the post-war post Polish, Polish government or interim government until the elections were held in 1947. That is a whole different kettle of fish, unfortunately. Absolutely. Which I would love, I'd love to spend, sit here and talk to you about this for hours because um, this is just it's great. Yeah. But um, we're, we're sticking with cutting, we're sticking with cutting. Yep. So obviously everything becomes fractured and loads of other things happen in between, which obviously we don't, we don't have time today to discuss everything, but talk to us what happens after the war, because the massacres used by the Soviets as propaganda, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So once the Soviets regain, um, once they kind of reoccupy Smolensk and the surrounding areas and they push the Germans out, they, they do their own, they have their own commission called the Berdenko Commission, um, where they basically say, oh, it was the Germans. The Germans committed this crime in 1941. Um, lots of fake papers are produced, um, newspapers from 1941 and not 1940, planted on bodies, etc. There are witnesses which are obviously uh, interviewed who say, oh, yes, the Germans were you know, there were Polish labourers here, they were working on doing this, and then, you know, the Germans obviously came in and they all they all disappeared type type thing. So it's and that lie that is created out of the Burdenko Commission is very much becomes the staple um history of, of what happened in the Soviet Soviet view. And any and then during the Cold War, any attempts to say it was the German, uh, to say it was the Soviets that did it, or anything like that would land you in, in prison. Or much worse. And there is a case of one of the uh, original witnesses of um, that was interviewed by the 
by the Germans in 1943, uh, Ivan uh, Krivoserbstov, he actually ended up coming to Britain. Um, and he, he was found hanged in 1947. Um, and although in this country they recorded it as a verdict of suicide, it, there's, there is very, there is much to suggest that there was foul play at the hands of the Soviets. You know, they did not want anybody that actually knew the truth to be able to proclaim it I would not to a wider audience. And it was the same in Poland as well. Throughout the period, you know, people that, are, that knew that their loved ones were, were buried in Katyn, they weren't allowed to talk about it. They weren't allowed to commemorate it. Any mention of Katyn, it was done by the German fascist invaders. It happened in 1941. And there were strict guidelines that were written down by the, you know, the, the Office for, for Censorship about how Katyn could be referred to or written about in that, in that period. Do the Soviets actually ever res admit responsibility? They did, and um, there were several factors that contributed to them finally admitting after 50 years that they actually carried out the massacre. But it was ultimately the discovery in the Soviet archives um, of the transport lists um, confirming the movement of Polish prisoners of war from, from the camps to the uh, regional NKVD offices that started the and that discovery was actually made by a russian historian who along with the um the relaxing of censorship laws in 1989 with you know Gorb, um with glasnost and perestroika happening in the gorbachev period um that allowed for articles to be written and she actually natalia lebedeva actually published an article in the moscow news um newspaper and that kind of said you know this is this is what happened you know this is the the truth and a lot of it was already known in the polish emigre circles polish underground circles because there were books and things that had been written that weren't based on archival documents but obviously testimonies from from uh, from various sources so she was the first person to kind of put put this out there in the russian in the soviet press and there was also pressure from the polish authorities on 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 the soviets to actually admit that it that it was them and that they couldn't really move forward with relations until there was an admission of guilt so in 1990 april the 13th uh, gorbachev admitted you know stalin and co were responsible and he handed over documents to to Yaruzelsky. but it didn't include the order of the 5th of March 1940 and that's that's kind of seen as a key document that says yes this was definitely carried out by the you know on the authorities of the, of the Politburo and those were handed over in 1992 by Yeltsin to Lech and there was a criminal investigation started as well into what happened. I'd like to say that things have now progressed for the better uh, in Russia regarding cutting but they really haven't, have they? No, and this is probably where my greatest interest lies and, and why I run the Twitter feed is there's an awful lot of fake news and, you know, the Soviets were excellent at fake news and the Katyn massacre is an example of that. But we still, today, are, there are still lies being peddled about, about Katyn. So although the Russian government have on an official level maintained that 
you know the Katastin massacre was carried out by by the NKVD they they didn't um, retract anything that Gorbachev said in 1990 um, and in 2010 the state Duma actually adopted the declaration stating words to the effect that it was carried out by the Soviet leadership the main issue in Russia has been about its qualification what what type of crime is 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 Katyn? Um, they don't see it as a war crime or a crime against humanity or even a genocide which it is obviously seen by some in in poland as they've never rehabilitated the victims um they have laws for that you know in the 1990s there was a, a big push for people to have their relatives who had been purged in the 1930s and earlier to be rehabilitated as victims of political repression and you would think that the, the victims of the Katyn massacre would be would be seen in the same way but unfortunately in the in the russian legal system that has not happened and a lot of the time they have used the excuse that oh well that body of that corpse uh, of that person hasn't been identified or we can't trust any of the information that was you know um based on the the german exhumations done in 1943 etc etc so there's an awful lot of dodging actually doing the right thing um and another thing that they that they've tried to do as well is um try and justify the cat in massacre so this actually started in 19, 1990 as soon as they admitted it gorbachev said to the people in the archives i need you to find documents um that that will that we can use as like a counterclaim against the polls regarding Katyn. So this is known as the anti-Katyn thesis. And what they what they do is they try to um, say that Katyn was carried out in revenge for the deaths of Soviet prisoners of war in the camps uh, in 1920, 1921, sorry, who died. So, um, sorry, what? <laughs> I, I really, I, I understood what you said, but sorry, what? Okay. Like, and there's... And the, <laughs> <laughs> trying okay i really don't understand trying to justify killing twenty two thousand men and a woman because we need to save men and women but personally with a shot to the back of the head and then just thrown into a ditch basically so there should be a justification for killing 22 right okay Interesting. And, it, and, the, and the and the idea is that because um the polls killed or allowed for the deaths of 30,000 um, pri uh, Soviet prisoners of war from the Red Army in, you know, the 1918 to 1920 war, that this was why Stalin then signed off for the killing of 22,000. And it's actually, a, it's actually an idea that has been floated by Putin on many occasions in an official capacity more than once do you know i've had people like that throw that at me um on on twitter as an argument and it's, it's mm. if we're gonna if we're gonna play this game let's add in like you said the 1937 pacification of polls i mean come on nobody's it is ridiculous you can't just also oh, you we, yep. we killed i don't know the 30,000 of you so we're gonna pacify another 25,000 mm. of you it is ridiculous it was just it was murder that's all it was a massacre and a murder. 
simple. They've ever since they admitted it, they've just tried to find ways to minimise it or put it in a, a, a con in the context of other Stalinist atrocity atrocities. So, you know, oh well, we're all victims. You know, Russians suffered under Stalin, so did Poles. But but there is a difference, and there must be a difference because they 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 lied about it for fifty years. So I think the archives that haven't been haven't been declassified probably there's probably a lot more to it than than we actually know and i think that's why they're so vehemently do you know what? against releasing any any more information it about it lucky in our lifetimes to be able to get in there yep so oh it is only wishing and praying but listen olivia thank you so much for joining us today that was an absolute excellent excellent podcast because we learn about a little bit more about the russian and polish relationship or the soviet and polish relationship um the cutting massacre how it came about who was executed what happened and then obviously the aftermath and it, it i'm i'm so happy you came on board thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on History Hack today. And stay tuned because soon we will be bringing you a special week of programmes on African-American history. The ripple effect of what happened to George Floyd has gripped the world and we've taken our time with this but we felt it was important to try and put those events in perspective and not only talk about how America came to be at this point, it is at now, this crucial point, but also why. We've interviewed some fantastic historians. There's some poignant, inspirational and utterly tragic material in some of these podcasts. It's been a highly emotional ride recording them and we're really looking forward to sharing them with you as well. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.